This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I want to thank Hachette and Karen Torres. Uh, Her invitation to moderate this uh, turned out to be a bonanza for me because it moved all three of these books to the top of my to be read pile. And collectively, they rearranged uh, my brain. They inspired me. And they all challenge us to be brave, to be bold, and to make a better future. Not only are these books must reads, they're a pleasure for the learning, they're a reminder that we must and can change the narrative. Being the good, obliging girl needs to be over. Um, So I'm thrilled to welcome all three of them. The format's going to be, I'm going to introduce everyone, ask uh, each of our authors to uh, say a little bit about their book, and then I've got about 5,000 questions for each of them and all of them, and then probably you also have uh, tons of your own questions. Our first uh, author is Leslie Gray Streeter, Uh, She has written for O Magazine, Palm Beach Post, Modern Loss. She's been featured in Huffington Post, FoxNews.com, the Miami Herald, the New York Times. Um, And Black Widow is her first book. This endearing, wonderful love story is both tender and a story about her becoming a widow at an obscenely young age and reminds us about the power of love and the possibility of recovery. All told, which seems a little incompatible, is laugh out loud, hilarious. Our second author is Ijoma Oluo, sorry, Ijoma, is the author of the New York Times bestselling and fantastic book, So You Want to Talk About Race, which is described as gorgeous and empathic and yet usefully blunt. Her writing is everywhere. It's featured in the Washington Post, NBC News, The Guardian. She's been honored twice as the Roots 100 most influential African-Americans and the most influential person in Seattle. She's also the winner of the 2018 Feminist Humanist Award and is in demand as a speaker across the country. In her new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America, she challenges a national narrative that for generations has defined success exclusively around white men. With her sharp wit, she provokes us to change the story for the benefit of all of us and for our future as a country. And our third author is Jennifer Palmari, who was the White House Communications Director for President Obama, no small job, head of communications for the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, and previously the author of Madam President, and now the author of She Proclaims Our Declaration of Independence from a Man's World, an inspirational and instructional manifesto for how we as women can boldly chart our own course in life, in a world created in our image, not men's. So with that, please have a virtual welcome uh, for all of our authors. What we'll 
I'll do as a format is I'll ask each of them to um, tell us a little bit about their book, and then we'll go to questions. Uh, why don't we start with you, Leslie? Okay, so it's so funny. I always have one of these around. I feel like on television shows or like they pretend like the old uh, talk shows. It's like, so tell us about your thing. What? Really? Me? And then the whole band shows up. <laughs> right here. Um, uh, my book is uh, a memoir. As you said, it's so grief memoir. It's also funny. Um, and people thought that was kind of inappropriate, but it's not because I can't imagine. I'm sure everyone who's ever been to a funeral or who's been at some sort of grief event where something messed up that was like kind of funny happened, like somebody that your grandmother couldn't stand showed up. You're like, ooh, she came. Or like <laughs> someone got drunk and said something wrong or just wrongness happened. So I was like, there's funny in everything. And I think that funny pulls you through a lot of stuff. And I wasn't trying to be, I just, I've always written that way. I, at least I think I am. I think I'm funny. Um, and it's, it's sort of the way that I, that I processed. So when I started writing the book, I wanted to basically write the book that I had wished I had read. It had been available for me to read when I was first widowed, which was just not like, oh, and everything will be okay. Or, and now you have healed and here is a book with butterflies on it and a pink cover and it's ah, and steps to whatever. It's like, it's messy and curse, curse full of cursing and drunk and, unsure and mad at God and your hair and everybody and has a lot of like watching like Patrick Swayze movies in it. Um, Cause that's what I did. Um, and there, cause there, there's no way to, to go through this that's set or accepted or good. There's no one way to grieve. You grieve the way that you grieve and hopefully you have people around you like I did who kind of were willing to sweep you around when you were being inappropriate or like, you know, just kind of pull you back, but also gave me the um the freedom to feel what i felt um and that's all i wanted to, to say to people we're having a national moment of grief right now as we grieve sort of the world before february or march and the world that we're in now and we have no idea how long this is going to last there's no like funeral and then you're back you get your chicken and you talk about people and you go home it's we're still in this and um i think that that's people have said to me and new people both people who have lost physical family members both through from COVID and otherwise, or people who have not felt they've been able to grieve people because they're grieving everything else about the world. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wanted to open up a conversation about grief because it's something we don't like to talk about. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Leslie. Ijoma? Hi, um, Ijoma Lo here. And uh, I have mine as well. Um, you know, it's funny actually, because galleys are, you know, sometimes like, publishers are precious about galleys you know and they're like oh you have this many galleys um but then my my house burned down and all my galleys burned up and then i got so many galleys in return and so now i don't know you know i try to find the um my partner and i've been joking we say worth it um and so <laughs> <laughs> that's a bad joke <laughs> so many galleys now um <laughs> it's, it's just how we you know like like uh you know, it's just like Leslie said, humor gets you through things. But uh, my book is Mediocre, uh, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And um, this book is kind of, you know, this book came from a moment and from a life, right? So I, 
um, have been writing about race and identity in America for years. And, you know, I think that many people who write on this, especially I would say many black women who write on this have experienced um, a frustration and chances are, even if you haven't written about this, you've experienced a frustration probably since 2016 with the question of why, why are, why are white men so angry? How did this happen? And all of these think pieces everywhere trying to analyze this new angry white man. And, and I found myself asking, like, did they fall from the sky? Like, what happened? No. Um, you know, I've been alive a while. And, you know, in my 40 years, I've encountered them, you know, before this election, uh, before, you know, the election before that. And it was, you know, this frustration that had been building up over, you know, over time. But then also, you know, I suddenly sat, I found myself sitting one day and we were all talking about these kind of, you know, crappy guys. And I just saw this path, you know, of history. And what I wanted was to, you know, what I think many of us who do this work want to do, which is to get people away from the thought that there's one bad actor here, one bad actor there, and, and look at the system that we're a part of. And what I wanted to do is really paint a picture looking through American history that shows, you know, in some kind of almost absurd ways how the choices that we have made as a society to build this kind of bubble around white men in this place of power, regardless of accomplishment, regardless of skill or talent, uh, and what it has cost us, all of us, regardless of race um, or gender or ethnicity. And so that's what this book is. And this book kind of looks through, you know, 150, 200 years of American history. And it's not necessarily, I'd say, a front to back history book. It's, I'm a, you know, I like story and I think in story is where we learn. So each chapter has a different theme, but you know, you may find yourself reading about Buffalo Bill one moment and then reading about the origins of football the next, <laughs> and then reading about tech bros in another moment, you know, and what it's really showing is just throughout history, we keep making these same choices. We keep setting these same values that do real harm. And if we want to get out of what I believe is one of the final forms of white male mediocrity that we're in as a society right now, um, we're going to have to start making different choices as a society and really look at what we are you know, propagating um, as a culture. And so that's, that's my book and I'm excited to bring it to Thank everybody. Thank you so much. Uh, Jennifer? Am I unmuted? Okay, yeah, okay, good. So I don't have, because I'm a communication professional, I don't just have a book, I have a whole poster, y'all. So, here's my poster of my book. Um, uh, you know, I, um, I had a similar aware, uh, sort of awakening uh, you know, that, that, would, that would fit in, um, uh, in the realm of white male uh, mediocrity, which was, or at least a sense that the world was built for them, which was that a, a good friend of mine who worked for Hillary Clinton for a long time, very progressive guy, during Me Too, he said to me, um, you know, when it was really first uh, breaking and um, everyone was focused on it, he said, you know, it never occurred to me that women go through their life feeling fear. And I was like, wow, I feel fear every single day of my life. And it was just a little, you know, I, I had these moments where there was a, a, like a window opened into a, another world, which was the perspective of how men look at the, how men look at the world. And I thought, well, 
if you and by the way, and to be fair to him, he was sort of appalled that it had never occurred to him that women feel fear every day. Um, and um, it was a little window into for you know for him into my world where you know we 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 do feel fear and we are very watchful of how we engage in the world. And I thought, well, if I were a man, I didn't know what it was. If I was a white man and didn't know what it was like to feel fear, of course I think I would fit in. Of course I would have all this confidence. Of course I would uh, just you know sort of go from job to job as if the world was made for me because the world was made for him. Um, and not that that is the that was the desire people were on Earth today. It was these are the systems that we are still operating under and. A few years ago, I never would have described myself as a woman uh, living in a man's world, right? My book is an actual declaration of independence from a man's world because I thought that was self-defeating. It would be self-defeating to say you're a woman in a man's world. Why would you Why would you actually make yourself an outsider? Why would you proclaim yourself to be an outsider? And then, um, you know, and I thought I was doing great in the world. I had a lot of good male mentors, male colleagues. And then I had a, this realization that I wasn't doing great in the world man's world i was doing great propping it up right i was doing great making it run well for them people would say about me well jennifer she's a great number two jennifer we couldn't do it without her but jennifer never fought for herself mm -hmm. jennifer wasn't a great ally to uh, a good enough ally anyway to other women um uh to people of color in terms of if you you know what i had the realization i had was if you settle for less than your worth you are devaluing all women, you're devaluing all marginalized people in the workplace. And so I wanted to write a book that uh, called this out to women, um, but did it in a way that helped us understand why we have internalized all the things that we've internalized about how we should behave, uh, why that's destructive and what you can do about it. And I made it a declaration of independence with the help of Gretchen Young, my genius editor, who um, always manages to crystallize the best way to share your message with people. Um, make it a declaration of independence that has chapter by chapter, you know, this is what we have been doing and this is how we're gonna do it differently. And call it, she proclaims so people say this stuff out loud because we have internalized um, so much uh, that, you know, and, and what I want women to come away from is to not be discouraged that they've been women struggling in a man's world, but appreciate all of the skills and uh, that they have developed in it, right? Because it is harder for women. It makes us better able to succeed now and to be proud of that um, struggle, but get out of it now and create your own path. Well, thank you um, to each of you. You know, as I uh, read all your books, which um, I'm just going to remind everybody, they're, they're must, they're, they're absolutely must read. I was reminded of a quote uh, that's one of my favorite quotes from some 19th century humorist. And the quote is that we love live conformists and dead nonconformists. Um, you know, we love the work that somebody did uh, afterwards. But while they're the noisy one raising their hand and being adamant and making people uncomfortable, we want them to go away and be quiet. We just want them to go away. Um, and as I read your books, I realized how each of you are brave and nonconformist. So I wanted to ask each of you the question of what do you think gave you the confidence and the bravery 
to be fighting the fight that each of you are fighting? Well, I'll start. Um, I think, and if someone asked me this question, something similar to it yesterday, I think a lot of it began with, I was blessed with a support system and parents who, when I went to college um, in 1989, my parents said, I know this is gonna be heavy, but let me tell you, you are representing black people and women to some people when you go into journalism, you go into classes and they will never have met a black person before maybe. And I hate to lay it on you, but like you got responsibilities to your ancestors I'm like, oh Lord, cause that's a lot, but it's, it's true. And I think that I was raised by people who expected me to be up to the challenge and to not, and they knew that I was gonna be told as I was by many people, you can't do this. You can't be a movie critic because there aren't any black female movie critics or you'll never be a columnist because who cares or whatever. And I just kind of went, also, it pissed me off. So I was like, well, I got to. Also, I think it was like, I was supported enough. And I know a lot of people don't have that support. So they fight against it. And that's what makes them great. And that, that's what makes them challenge. I had both. I was told by people who didn't know me, they ain't met me, you know, that I couldn't do these things. And that, but I knew I had enough people with my back, my mom, my grandma, my twin sister, my daddy, whoever, who were like, don't worry about those people, do what you know you need to do. Um, and I think that, that those two things fighting against each other, um, I'm also probably a little cocky. <laughs> and, you and as a woman, it's okay. It's okay to say, you're good at what you do. You know what you're doing. You, you're, I'm a good writer and I know I am. I've always been a good writer. I'm not maybe the best writer, but I know that I'm really good. And so to get to this point as women where we're not self-deprecating, we don't go, well, I looked great today, but my butt was fat. Or, well, I'm funny, but maybe. <laughs> Just do your thing, dude. Just do what you do and know that you do it well because there are enough people who are gonna tell you that you don't. So don't you be one of them. Well, isn't there that quote? I think it's in one of, I think maybe, um, uh, Ijoma, it's in your book, the Sarah Hagee quote, oh, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I and I, I I'm regularly telling writing students who feel especially women um and um non-binary people who feel like, you know, oh, I'm just not good at this. I don't have the accolades, I don't have the degrees. And like, look, would a white man spend this much time wondering if he's qualified to write before writing his whole life story? No. We no. have so many books that that show the opposite. So um, even if you're not good at it, get out there because there's enough crappy books out there written by white men that you can get your work out there. We deserve as many. We deserve, you know, we deserve to be heard and 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 not be great at what we do as well. Um, you know, we deserve to be heard and, and we add to the narrative. And you know, I think for me, growing up, it you know, we grew up really, really poor. I was raised by a single mom. And it was funny because my mom, I wouldn't say was someone who handled a lot of things, but she had this idea that I I was okay. And I just remember her being like, you know what, Ijoma's got it. She's good. She mm -hmm. she can take care of things, you know, and not like she can take care of the whole house, but like she's a, she's a competent, smart person. And that's one less stress I'm going to have is wondering whether or not my daughter can make it through wow. things. And I was just, you know, my brother and I both, I think she was just like, yeah, yeah, you know, we'd be like, mom, you know, I want to try music. Oh, I bet you'd be great at that. You know, oh, I want to do this. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, fine. I mean, you have to figure out how to find an instrument. We don't have any money, but, you know, go ahead. You know, we, we figure that out. And that is. You know, and so we kind of grew up with this idea of like, oh, yeah, you know. And then I think also when you grow up really poor, like you had this sense of what 
is catastrophe and what's not, right? And, you know, I would remember these times where we'd come home and like our electric would be cut off. And my mom would turn and look at us and go, you're okay, you're okay, I'm okay, we're okay. You know, everyone's whole, everyone's healthy, we'll handle this, you know, and we would move forward. And so when I went out into the world and it didn't work that way, like other people were looking at me being like, oh yeah, Jen can handle it, it's great, I'm sure she's good at that, you know, and people weren't believing me when I was like, yeah, I can do this thing, I can do anything. Um, I just decided, well, I mean, I either do it or I don't. I'm never gonna get the results I want. Um, playing any of these games. Like I can do this at 50, 60, 70, where I'm still trying to prove, bending over backwards, trying to be extra nice, or I can just live my life. Because either way, as a black woman, no one is going to actually hand me what I want. Like there are no set rules that are gonna get me where I wanna go. So I might as well go out authentically, right? You know, and, and live my life and start talking about the things that I thought I couldn't talk about because not talking about them wasn't helping. And, and that's really kind of where it started, where I was envisioning myself working my way up a corporate ladder and still not talking about the things that mattered, still not bringing my whole self into a room. And I was like, I, I don't want to live like that. And there's never a good time, so I might as well do it now. And, and that's kind of how I live. And it suits my personality as someone who can never not say the thing. You know, um, it's just a lot easier to just say it. Mm. Jennifer? Um, I've always been pretty outspoken. I don't have any brothers. I have three. I was one of four girls and I haven't really fully comprehended all of that. But I think that that um, I didn't have I never saw somebody else treated differently than myself in my own family. And I, I now as I'm older, I appreciate that that was probably a big deal. Um, I've seen a lot of great comments in the comment section about uh, mediocrity rising to the top. And I do think that I lacked some confidence because I was not one of those people. I mean, I've you know done well in my political career, but yeah, I became White House communications director. I was 10 years older than the guy that had it before me, right? And I worked for him as his deputy. I have, from the time I was about 34, I worked for men that were um, older than me. And um, those guys didn't think they were 10 years, you know, Dan Pfeiffer, who was White House communications director at the time and a good friend of mine, Dan did not think he was 10 years better than me, right? But he just rose faster, right? Proved to be more buoyant than I did. And, um, uh, and I think that's because we recognized Dan right away, young, ambitious guy, the boy genius, nobody ever talks about the girl genius. Um, and, uh, so they, you know, they, they rise faster because the world was literally built for them. And I didn't see it as clearly as, um, I saw more of something lacking in my skill than just that, that I was, that I was playing a rigged game. And then the switch for me was, um, honestly, it was the 2016 election. And I think that's true for a lot of of white women because black women, you know, uh, as, as you two both described, you've always, uh, operated out had to operate outside of um uh power systems whereas white women have found some i'm sorry to say refuge and shelter in a white male patriarchy right and like because it offers shelter and refuge um uh you're scared to leave that perch even though the perch is unsatisfying um and i think after 16 for me and i worked for hillary clinton i thought if we can have this kind of outcome 
it means that we are playing by the wrong set of rules, right? When it means that I was right to have those doubts in my gut that told me, I don't think this is quite right, or um, this this doesn't seem to be fair, or um, I'm being told to behave in a way that doesn't seem to be working or producing what I want. It was like all of those doubts were confirmed. And then you were saying, okay, I'm just going to play by an entirely different set of rules. I'm just going to, I'm going to create my own game. And then that was when, um, you know, I had the idea to write a book about my experience that turned into Dear Madam President. And um, the other advice that I got during the, during the time, you know, partly um, from Gretchen and this other woman, Kara Swisher, who some of you may know, um, speak journals, uh, was like, dig deep and don't hold back. And if you tell the truth, uh, you're never going to have to be, you're never going to have to really defend it because you're going to be at peace with what you said. And that's how I've lived since 16. Wow. That, that was great. You know, there's a uh, paragraph in Joma's book uh, that kind of cracked me up if it didn't infuriate me. And uh, the paragraph is, how, how often have you heard the argument that we have to slowly implement gender and racial equality in order not to shock society? <laughs> Who is the society that people are talking about? I can guarantee that women would be able to handle equal pay or a harassment-free work environment right now with no ramp up. I'm certain that people of color would be able to deal with equal political representation and economic opportunity if it were made available today. So for whose benefit do we need to go slowly? How can white men who are our born leaders at the be at the same time so fragile that they can't handle social progress? I love that paragraph and what it, what I think would be great, Ijoma, would be for you to describe what you call the works according to design, because that was the concept that, and I think it's what Jennifer's talking about also. It's like, wait a minute, who put me in this box? So share with us what that means. You know, it's really, it's a, you know, it starts, it's a phrase that often, um, I find that many like activists, especially in issues of um, racial justice, say a lot. And it's this kind of reminder. It's kind of this almost sarcastic, pessimistic reminder when something awful happens or something that seems brutally unfair happens. Like, yeah, it works according to design because we are talking about systems in play. And our society likes to make people feel like, especially marginalized populations, um, you know, women, trans people, non-binary people, disabled people, and BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Like we're just unlucky, or we made the wrong choices, or we haven't, you know, walked down the right path. But no, time and time again, things work according to design. And when we see these dis these vast disparities, but they're so consistent in our society on who who has power, who doesn't, who gets punished and who doesn't, who gets rewarded and who doesn't. That's the way the system's actually supposed to work. And it's a reminder that, yes, we absolutely have to be upset at every news story. Yes, we have to be upset at every slight, every time we're passed over. But our focus, if we want to make change, needs to be at the system. And so we need to start asking, why is it always this way? You know, is it, do we really believe that you know, um, black people are fundamentally flawed, that native people are fundamentally flawed, that women are fundamentally flawed? Or do we recognize that this system is churning out consistent results over and over and over again that are designed to look like this? And so then, you know, we tackle the system. And so that's kind of, you know, 
it's it's a phrase that always annoys me when I come across it, but it's always true. And you know, we talk about, oh, you know, for me, someone who works in racial justice, you know, or police officers not being charged with murder. Well, that's that's the design of the actual system. Like that's that's the way that works, you know. Um, when you're passed over for a promotion as a as a woman because you're not management material, and then you're in trouble because maybe you're too aggressive when you try to show your leadership skills. Well, that's the way that's supposed to work. You know, it's not a it's not a fluke. It's not even a mistake. It's designed to be that way. And Ijoma, in you know, one of the things that I uh, found really helpful in each of your books is that they were both philosophical and then pragmatically instructional about, okay, chicks, do this. <laughs> so what would be the what would what would be the one thing you'd pluck out that you want would want to make sure that we understand is the first step? Because you know, I think what a lot of us do is we think you know what? I can't boil the ocean. So mm -hmm. I'm going to go to my beach chair. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's steps we can take. So what would be one that you'd love to see all of us begin to, to change the system by doing? You know, the one thing I would say is it's important to do your own self-inventory of what am I showing I value in my mm -hmm. actions? Yeah. And especially when it comes to gender and race. And People think that we don't have any power, but we spend money every day. We, we vote. Um, we we patronize different institutions. We have conversations with our children and our family members. And so stop saying, what am I saying to people, right? Because we say the right things. We say we want equality. We say we want this. But look instead, wait, why am I trusting this business that, that has leaders that look this way and not this one? Why am I more inclined to vote for this talking head with the tie versus this person here? Why am I you know, spending my money in these areas? Why am I watching these movies and not questioning what's happening in them? Why am I not having conversations? Why are my conversations I'm having with my sons versus my daughters so vastly different, right? Um, and start asking, am I really valuing it? And so find it in yourself and then look and see maybe as a family, what are we actually valuing? What is the message we actually send with our actions? Um, and then look as a society. And so pick, and if you want, pick a, pick a segment of society. I love to start with schools, right? Because I feel like it's such a, you know, an important part of our society. And so when I look at race and gender, what do we actually value? Well, look at our school boards. Who's in our school boards making decisions? Um, do we actually know what the numbers are as far as, you know, um, opportunity in schools for testing and graduation rates in our schools? Do we know who's getting suspended and expelled? And look and say, okay, where am I putting my time and energy? Where are the teachers putting their time and energy? What message are we saying that we actually value in society that has nothing to do with the platitudes that we put up on our walls or the things we share on Facebook that are actually tied to our actions? And I want us to recognize where we have been programmed to, actually, to value things that are harmful and to show you know real support of things that are harmful so that we can make different decisions and then share that talk with yeah. other people don't just do it on your own recruit other people to do it with you and i'm going to come back to that in uh in a second the 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 phrase i use for that is the way we live is the world we get mm. right every day we're living a certain way that's reinforcing or upending the world that we live in um, 
Uh, Jennifer, what would be the the guide? What would be the number one pick for you? And and by the way, Jennifer's book goes through every chapter tells you one thing that you can do. So asking her to pick out one is a little bit unfair, but no, I no, 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 there's definitely one. There's definitely never run one. But I have to note that the reason why all three women have written a book that has concrete advice is because that's what women do, right? Right. Right. It would be enough for us to just to just be like, oh, I think this. Let me put this out in the world with nothing to do with it, right? Just yeah. to do about it. So we want to give and that's why we're better positioned to succeed now than people who don't do that. Like maybe there are some men that don't do that, maybe. So my, uh, my one thing is support women. So that's it, <laughs> like support women. They rid, your, rid from your brain the idea that women are in competition with each other. Um, because when we believe ourselves to be in competition with each other, what we are really saying is we don't belong here. We're really saying that, um, we uh, that only that that that, uh, you know, the success for women, success for people of color is a finite resource. And nobody thinks that of white men. Right. There is endless success, uh, infinite amount of success available for white men. And I think that we sort of have internalized that. And so we think that marginalized populations, you know, and you see that, like I talk in my book about the history of suffrage, where at one point, uh, uh, you know, abolition and civil rights for Black Americans and um, all women were aligned and then divorced. Um, uh, at, you know, at at um, at one point, and um, you know, white women were not good allies to uh, uh, to those seeking uh, suffrage for Black men, and that meant that hurt everybody, right? So we got it. We have to break out of that. And I think if you, what I have found, I always thought I always wanted to be a good ally to other women. Um, but I had that nagging doubt that I might be helping the woman who's going to replace me, right, mm -hmm. or going to outshine me. And what I have learned is that, um, and I also didn't want to feel like I needed the support of other women. But what I have found is that when I support other women, when they support me, that is what you need to bring it to the next level. I really believe that is it yeah. is buying into the idea that we are in competition with each other that helps keep a lid on our success and perpetuates these power systems where you know mediocre white men succeed. And and um, Jennifer, you know, because it, it doesn't it seem like the fact that if we believe it's a zero sum game, that's just going to fuel misogyny and racism, right? You make it true. Yeah, yeah, you make it true. You do well. That's the angry white man. You know, you black woman, you woman, you you know, you're taking away from me. Well. Who said it was yours in the first place? Who said it was yours in the first place? Yeah, we really buy into, um, and you know, but some of my friends will push back and say, well, but it's just true. And it's like, well, stop making it true. Just if yeah. you change what's in your own mind and you change the way you engage in the world, you have changed the world. You have. Yeah. And so our intention matters so much. The way we go into the world with like what we hold in our head as to whether a woman is a threat to us or not, or as our sister, it, I mean, it has, it has been life changing for me. I just, so support women. And that means yourself too. That is the book. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I want to ask um, uh, this question because I think it's been a big topic all year. And I thought about it. Uh, Ijoma's first book was, so you want to talk about uh, race and obviously this has been a long overdue conversation and many of us who are white cringe at the idea that we would be described as racist and 
and and be in the same pile of people that are vile and violent and hateful. And it feels like, why am I in the tent with them? But I think what we're learning, and I think the your book, So We Want to Talk About Race, it's so critical because if I think about it, yeah, I've got biases and I'm not necessarily speaking up. I hear stuff and I think, well, you know what? I, I don't want to make the noise right now. And you know what? It's not really ruining my day right now. So I'm I'm going to let it go. So I, I, I wouldn't want this conversation to end without asking you, Ijoma, to define for us racism. It's a small topic and we have exactly two minutes for you to do it, but have at it. <laughs> you know, uh, what I would love to say here is, um, you know, there are two definitions that are often in competition. One, people like to think racism is just any bias towards someone based on the color of their skin or their, their you know, race or ethnicity. Um, but the one that I use and many other race scholars and activists use is racial bias that is backed up by systems of power. Mm. Why? Because when we're looking at where racism does harm, and this is why people get so touchy about being implicated in racism, we are talking about the systems. We are talking about our inability to get jobs, to get equal medical treatment, to have in, you know, proper infrastructure in our neighborhoods, to get proper educations, right? We're talking about all of these ways that, that add up to you know, the average black household in America having one thirteenth in that financial worth of the average white household in America, right? We're talking about systems. We're not talking about animus. We're not talking about hatred. We're talking about the ways we vote, you know, the systems, how we identify qualified versus unqualified. We're talking about all the ways that we interact with our systems. And so I want people to embrace this idea as an empowering one, because if you think racism is just about hatred and the only way we solve it is by winning over every hate-filled person who's stubbornly committed to their racism, it's not happening. But if instead we say racism is our systems and how we vote, where we spend our money, who we're talking to, who we're hiring, you know, who we're promoting, that is how we make a difference, then we are empowered to actually make real change. And so I want people to stop being afraid of hearing that and lean into it and say, I have power now. Yes, it hurts, it sucks to find out I've done something harmful, but now I have power to do something instead of just watching a news story, sharing a Black Lives Matter thing on Facebook and saying, that's all I can do, <laughs> right? Now you can actually do something. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. So, can I answer that other question? I never got to answer that other question. Yes. Thank you, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, mm -hmm. I never answered the question. Uh, basically, mine, but by well, there's so much I want to say, but very quick because we're running out of time. My whole message was basically: you get to heal on your own, and no mm -hmm. one can tell you not to. And that's I write from a grief perspective, from a larger perspective. It's you. No one gets to tell you the proper steps to live your life, the proper steps to be healthy. And it's good to ask for help. And I asked for help and people who are in sort of traumatic situations to ask for help. And we're in a traumatic situation right now in, in the world. And I think that for women, we believe that we have to be everything for everyone um, rather than in on planes, they say, if something happens, put your own mask on first before you can help somebody. <laughs> you know, and for women, I think that we are told you have an infinite amount of time to help everyone else, but a finite amount of time to pull yourself together before yeah. you get other people, because that's your your function. And I found sort of as as a 
as a widow that people wanted you either to prove how sad you were, um, like on an episode of like Law and Order where they go, the widow didn't look sad enough. She did it. It's her. She did it. Um, or they wanted you to stop, as my friend Nora McInerney says, stop getting your sad all over everybody because they want you to 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 sort of buck up and go, all right, and now everyone have pie and I'm going to just be sad in the corner. Um, and I want women to know that you get to be sad. You get to be angry because I was angry at a lot of people. I was angry at my husband and his heart attack and cheesesteaks. I was mad at God. I was mad at people that expected me to comfort them through my grief. Like you'd see people at funerals and they go, oh, and they'd sob and, and gush over mm -hmm. you. Like, can I just be sad today? Do I have to fix you today too? Sometimes so, tell us about the sake because that chapter <laughs> called Grief Cake, yes, and the sake I think epitomizes what you decided day one you were going to give yourself. I did, and it's weird too because I have been a person who's nice, I think, for women is defined as what I let you say to me. Nice is not rocking the boat, and I've been mostly nice. Um, my sister is my first, she's my twin, so people go, She's like the Disney princess, and I'm like. Maleficent or something, but mostly we're nice. Um, but yeah, my husband, the day before he died, bought me um, sake at a gas station, most likely because he'd spent a lot of money at a sports store and wanted to go, but I bought you something too. And it was literally, he walked in, there was sake at a gas station and he bought it. So the next day when I'm bewildered and everyone's in my um, my living room crying and I see the sake in the refrigerator and I went, I'm gonna drink this. And it was probably two in the afternoon and I cracked it open and I'm walking around barefoot like it was a tragedy. I mean, not just it was a tragedy. I looked like a tragedy and I'm walking around slugging off this bottle. And my sister goes, what are you doing? And I go, my husband bought me this sucking. <laughs> you know, um, and it looked like I was losing my mind probably because I was. But um, <laughs> in that moment when I had all the time in the world because he was not there and I was in the bed alone going, well, this sucks. Um, to think this is how, and I, I instinctively did it. I instinctively said, I need this for myself because otherwise I'm going to freak out and none of you are going to be happy. Um, I thought the thing that will make me happy, not to be a jerk and go, I'm more important than you. And I don't want to hear about your sadness and shut up. It wasn't that at all. It's just that at the end of the day, I needed to take care of myself because everyone mm -hmm. who wanted to help me knew that it had the, the healing had to come. The healing came within. See, now I signed with one of those books that I said I, I wouldn't. Yeah, so um, I think um, we're going to have to close, and I, I'd like to close with this. I mean, as I said at the outset, um, we could be here all afternoon. I, all of you that are listening, you cannot imagine the joy and benefit of reading these books. I, I, I can't stress it enough. Um, Leslie's book um, titled Black Widow, it will remind you about the power of love. And Ijoma's two books, we just have to read this. We're, we're not going to change unless we understand uh, what she's helping us understand. So you need to read So You Want to Talk About Race, and you must read Mediocre. And Jennifer, who had to leave us, um, her book, um, Madam President, and um, she proclaims, 
we can do this. We can do this, people. Uh, but we need to be open and listen to women like our three authors today. So bravo to all three of you. Thanks to the hundreds and hundreds of you uh, that joined us. And I'm going to turn it back to Karen because sadly, sadly, our time's up. Thank you. Thank you, Roxanne, Leslie, Igioma, and Jennifer. That was absolutely outstanding. You raised the bar even higher. The chat blew <laughs> up. You did it. You did it. And for such a heavy-duty uh, discussion, the takeaway line is humor will take you through everything. Um, and so I want you to go and uh, remember that. Thank you again, ladies. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.